the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Loma Prieta. A look back. The 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. A year has now passed since the great quake of 89. 67 people lost their lives. Thousands of homes were damaged, many rendered uninhabitable. Property damage totaled in the billions. It was the single most devastating disaster in the history of California. And to this date, areas nearest the epicenter remain virtually unchanged. Businesses still operate out of tents. Hundreds are still homeless. Victims of the quake we called Loma Prieta still suffering. What have we learned from all this? On the six-month anniversary of the quake, Craig Roberts talked with Ed Bortuño, staff geologist with the Bay Area Earthquake Preparedness Project. In terms of uh, what we can expect, there has been talk about uh, uh, another big shaker taking place um, along the Calaveras Fault, talk about the Hayward Fault. We've seen some activity in just the past two weeks along the Concord Fault. Um, a lot of it, I'm sure, is a guessing game in spite of the scientific efforts, but nonetheless, there are some solid numbers that are available percentage-wise as to when it will take place and where. That's right. And um, simply, uh, you know, what you just got through saying, that we're having earthquakes. We're having them on the Calaveras Fault. We had a large earthquake on the San Andreas Fault at Loma Prieta. These, this is telling us something. This was not the, the case uh, 10 years ago, for instance. We were not having the numbers of significant earthquakes we're having now. Significant being earthquakes bigger than about four and a half. Um, the rest of them are uh, almost daily occurrences. So when you start seeing earthquakes four and a half or greater, five, five and a half, that's telling us something. Now, is this a, um, uh, perhaps a, an example of what's taken place in times past? Is there any kind of pattern here in terms of increased activity of smaller fours and fives is kind of perhaps a, uh, an introduction to something bigger? Yes, it is. And that's an old myth uh, that... Uh, the opposite of that is an old myth. In other words, when we're having a lot of moderate quakes, it's good. It, it relieves, relieves a strain in a manageable fashion along faults, and it prevents the big one from coming. History uh, really tells us the opposite is true. When we start having f magnitude 4 and 5 earthquakes along certain parts of faults, such as the Hayward Fault, for example, uh, we haven't seen that yet, but when we do, I think those are warning signs that something bigger is coming. And that's the way it's worked historically. Now, of course, in 1906, which was the, uh, excepting October 17th, was the biggest and uh, most damaging earthquake that this area has seen, at least during this century. Um, they did not have the scientific information available. Uh, there had not been the geological studies done. There had not been any kind of regulations in terms of uh, earthquake um, proof buildings, uh, mm -hmm. or although I guess no building is really earthquake proof, but there's certainly things that you can do to help prevent sure. the amount of damage that will take place and loss of life. Right. And so right now is a time when we have this kind of information available to really sit up, take notice, and do everything that we can before the next one hits. Right. Was October 17th the big one? No, it was the pretty big one, but it wasn't the big one. And uh, 
the 06 quake, if you want a comparison between the 1906 quake and the Loma Prieta earthquake, the, uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake was about one-fiftieth uh, the strength of the 06 quake. In other words, the 1906 quake released about 50 times the amount of energy that Loma Prieta released. That doesn't mean that the ground shook 50 times harder. It just means that in terms of the total energy, and that is the ground shaking, it, there was 50 times more of it. Uh, a larger area was affected with Loma Prieta size shaking. So it wasn't little pockets of damage in Santa Cruz and Watsonville. It was spread out over a much larger area. So we had cities like Watsonville and other places had, had damage in 06. But in 06, we also had Berkeley and Oakland and Santa Rosa with major damage. Since last October 17th, geologists and seismic experts have recorded some 7,000 tremors here in the Bay Area. But does this mean the worst is yet to come? All right, as a follow-up question then, if we follow historical precedents then, that a series of smaller earthquakes is generally an indicator of another big one to come, um, now that we've seen essentially San Andreas do its thing, has this increased either the likelihood of a great magnitude or uh, moved up at all the schedule of when the Hayward Fault might do its thing? Yeah, it has, in fact. And uh, if the likelihood in 1988 was about 25 or 30 percent on the Hayward Fault, it's going to be higher. And in fact, Bay Area-wide, we have a more likely chance uh, for a magnitude 7 earthquake now than we did six months ago, the day before the Loma Prieta earthquake. We had about a 50% chance on October the 16th, uh, 1989. We now probably have about a 70 or 80% chance of another earthquake. Okay, in light of that, because of the October 17th quake, are geologists changing their tactics in the way they're monitoring the faults here in the Bay Area specifically? We're trying to. Uh, like everything else, these things all take huge amounts of money. But we are looking at the Hayward Fault now in a much closer fashion than we ever have in the past um, with instrumentation. And um, But, you know, there's not a lot of promise that we'll get much warning. The Loma Prieta earthquake, even though we knew it was on a fault that was likely, it still didn't give us any warning, really. It, it was, came, basically came out of nowhere. Uh, if if you ignore the fact that in August there was a magnitude 5 and in June of 88 there was also a magnitude 5. Um, those told us something, but it really only said, yeah, this is the one that's going to go, but it still didn't really narrow the time frame down. Uh, if we see a magnitude 5 earthquake along the Hayward Fault, for instance, you'll see some very nervous seismologists um, because that would be similar to uh, the, you know, the, the earthquakes that occurred on Loma Prieta. To gain a clearer understanding of what happens on the surface during an earthquake, you first need to understand what happens below. In simple terms, uh, we're talking about um, plate movement, the theory of plate tectonics, which says that the surface of the Earth is actually constantly in motion, driven by heat from within. Large pieces of the Earth's crust, uh, actually the Pacific Plate, is the size of the Pacific Ocean. It is the Pacific Ocean, basically. And everything on the west side of the San Andreas Fault you would call the Pacific Plate. Everything on the east side of the San Andreas Fault is the North American Plate. And these things are moving north-south. The uh, Pacific Plate is moving northward. The North American Plate is moving southward. So if you imagine the epicenter of the Loma Prieta earthquake uh, at 11 miles depth, and the San Andreas Fault running right through that point, everything on the left side during the Loma Prieta earthquake, or the west side, pushed northward in 15 seconds, about 6 feet. Uh, it 
and upward about two and a half feet. That averages out to about two and a half inches a year. And if only the faults moved two and a half inches each year, we'd be in much better shape. But they don't. They, the rocks along the fault zone hold strain for a while. So it builds and builds and builds, and it releases. Six feet in 1865, or in, uh, in 1989, um, 20 feet in 1906. So this is where earthquakes come from, from Did this release of strain buildup. Do you have any predictions as to the movement on the Hayward Fault? Should the big one come along the Hayward Fault in the next few well, years? Well, what we're talking about, even though it'll be, it'll be a bigger problem, it's not a bigger earthquake. All we're doing is taking a, the same magnitude quake as Loma Prieta, basically a 7 but we're moving it 60 miles closer to us. To a highly densely populated densely area. Densely populated area right in our backyard with all the lifelines that we use every day and rely on every day affected. Uh, so we could become the Watsonville of the East Bay. We're lining up Watsonville, Santa Cruz, uh, Hollister, Los Gatos, all along the fault. But now it's Berkeley, Oakland, Hayward, Union City, Fremont. Um, a dense accumulation of damage as opposed to spots of damage. And areas highly populated and areas that contain the most important arteries, freeways that we have for exactly. transportation to and from point A and point B here in the Bay Area. Loma Prieta, a look back. The 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Our special tribute continues in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Loma Prieta, a look back, the 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Historically, earthquakes have always been a part of life in Northern California. Dr. Robert Airhammer of the UC Berkeley Seismology Station comments. One of the things we find is that going back last century, in 1836, there was a, a major earthquake on the Hayward Fault Zone the northern part of the Hayward Fault Zone, say north of San Leandro. Then in 1838, there was an earthquake roughly in the San Francisco Peninsula region on the San Andreas. And then 1868, there was another major earthquake on the Hayward Fault Zone, this time the southern part from San Leandro southward towards Hayward. And then in 1906, there's a 1906 San Francisco earthquake to name the biggest earthquakes. One of the things they've noticed is that for the 15 or 20 years preceding the 1906 earthquake, there was a fairly high number of magnitude 6 and larger earthquakes in the region. And it appears to have been an anomalously high number of earthquakes. And since 1979, we've seen a few earthquakes in magnitude 6 range in the Bay Area again. As to the chance of another major quake in this region, Dr. Erhammer revealed the sobering facts. Uh, when you look at just the occurrence of earthquakes that we've had in the past two centuries in California in general and also specifically in the Bay Area, you can compute what the odds are for other large earthquakes to occur based on the historical record in part and based on the accumulation of strain along the fault systems. And when we do this, we find that the probability of having one or more magnitude 7 or larger earthquakes that is similar to the one that occurred last October, the probability of having one or more of those earthquakes occur Within the next 30 years in the greater Bay Area is about two chances in three, or about 67%. So earthquakes are a part of California life. We can't stop them. It's difficult to predict them. So what's left? Richard Eisner, director of the Bay Area Earthquake Preparedness Project, comments. 
uh, the message that we've been putting out to the general public, to local governments, businesses, church groups, is that the earthquake threat in California didn't begin in 1906, and it certainly didn't end in 1906, that we can continue to expect major quakes, such as we had in Loma Prieta, uh, through our lifetimes. And uh, we can make a difference if we prepare. It's natural for me, for you, for, for anyone uh, following October 17th to say, well, it's over with. We just want to quit hearing about this and, and get back to our day-to-day routines. But really, things are different now, and we should look at things differently if we're not. Right. I think all of our lives have been changed. The people who uh, had the loss of, of life and, the, and their friends and families will be impacted uh, forever. The uh, people who were disrupted and dis- inconvenienced uh, who had to commute around the bay. Uh, this earthquake affected more than the 62 people who were killed or the 3,000 who were injured and hospitalized. It affected millions of people, and it should have changed their lives. It should have given them a new perspective on the earthquake threat and made them much more serious and much more concerned about doing something to change the outcome of the next quake. But is earthquake preparedness really going to make a difference? I think the kinds of things we're asking people to do that, change, that will literally change the outcome of the next earthquake, will eliminate life loss, will eliminate injury and reduce the, the dollar loss, are the kinds of things that you should be doing in your homes. When you get into the car, you put your seatbelt on. That's a cautious, prudent thing to do. Mm-hmm. In your homes, you ought to bolt your home to the foundation and make sure the, the walls are braced properly and your cabinets are braced. Those are the prudent things to do. That's all we're asking. We're not asking for someone to change their lives radically. So it isn't really then an earthquake that kills, it's the structural damage that comes as a result of it. Right. If you're in a structurally sound building, uh, built on uh, structurally sound uh, uh, terracotta, <laughs> your, your likelihood of sustaining major damages is going to be lessened. Yes, in fact, the people who were killed in this quake were killed in buildings that we expected to collapse. Older brick buildings without any steel reinforcing. Older concrete structures, such as the Cypress Freeway structure, which we knew wasn't braced adequately. It was built in the mid-50s when we didn't know that much about concrete design for seismic loads. And uh, those buildings we knew were hazardous. We knew they were going to come down in a major quake. We were hoping to be able to get to those buildings and strengthen them, but we ran out of time. Now the the clock is ticking again. And the question is, are we going to run out of time again, or are we going to make the commitment now to change the outcome. If we survive the last one, what about the next? The next one is not going to be as kind to us correct. as the last one was. And we can turn to the response by police department, the fire departments, both in the city and throughout the Bay Area, really. Mm-hmm. The response was really exemplary. Yes, I think we did extremely well. People had trained to respond to this size event. But, but... Next time may not be the case. Next time, the police departments, the fire departments may be so overwhelmed, safety services, ambulances, things of that sort, that we are really, as you said just a second ago, really going to have to rely on our own preparedness Yes. in order to, to ride out, perhaps at minimum, the first 24 hours it could be from your office and OES as long as three or four days. Yeah, I think what we saw again was in this earthquake a sort of a threshold level of earthquake damage. The next quake, if it's in the core of the Bay Area, could make p- 
police and fire services victims just as well as it made homeowners victims this time around. And it reminds that, me so much of the fire uh, department. I don't know which station it is, but there's a fire station in San Francisco. You can see off the Bay Shore right there mm-hmm. at Hospital Curve. It's an all-brick building. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering... <laughs> yes, well, San Francisco has something on the order of 50 fire stations, 40 of which re- are going to require retrofit to bring them up to earthquake standards. San Francisco is making a commitment to do that. They passed a $46 million bond issue a couple of years ago. Uh, I wish other jurisdictions around the, this region would do the same. We've got to make the commitment now. What then should we be doing? In terms of preparation, uh, we, during the early days of the earthquake, uh, here at this station, were referring people to uh, the white pages of their telephone book for a lot mm-hmm. of information on not only response, but, but preparation and some things that they can do. Uh, from your experiences, from what you have seen uh, firsthand, no doubt, Richard, what are some of the key things that homeowners and tenants need to do? Just perhaps a half a dozen or so. Okay. Be ready. Probably the first thing to do is just look around your home, and, and there are hazards in everyone's home. The hazards are usually bookshelves that are not bolted to those studs, the wooden studs of the wall. They are furniture that uh, could overturn on children. They are uh, objects that could fall out of cabinets onto the floor, creating uh, broken glass kinds of uh, carpeting, uh, if you be, if you will. Uh, these kinds of hazards can be eliminated, and we can, to a great extent, deal with the content hazards before the earthquake and eliminate them. Those are the simple things to do. After you've made sure the contents of your home is safe, the next thing would be to make sure your house is bolted to its foundation and that the, the walls of the house, particularly the walls in the basement, are braced. And that's, again, something that is easy to be addressed if you do it before the earthquake. If you wait till after the earthquake, you're not talking about a $200 weekend project. You're talking about maybe a $20,000 uh, job of jacking your house back up on its foundation. But you said something interesting there. I think a lot of people have been under the impression that, well, my goodness, earthquake-proofing my home is going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. Are no. you jesting when you say $200 no, a I'm, weekend? No, I'm not. I'm not. Most people, if they have a crawl space under their home or a basement, can earthquake not proof, but make their home earthquake resistant for less than $200 worth of material and a couple of days of work. It's extremely cost-effective. Does this require a licensed contractor, or could a well-educated handyman do something like this? A well-educated handyman could do it. They could do it with the the tools, uh, primarily hammer, nails, and saw. That's not a lot of work. Uh, If you're not able to do it yourself, there are a number of contractors who could do it. It it tends to be then more expensive. But again, it's cost-effective. It's inexpensive investment. It protects and preserves your investment in your home. After the earthquake, if your home has fallen off its foundation, uh, there's a high probability of fire. There's a high probability that your house will have to be demolished. You'll have nothing. And uh, unless you have earthquake insurance, you're not protecting yourself. And I think bolting your foundation and bracing the walls is a better investment than earthquake insurance. We've learned a lot about life here in earthquake country since last October 17th. Most importantly, we've learned that earthquakes in California are a part of life, a part of our lives. It's not if, but when. And through careful preparation, we can be ready for the next one. And we can survive. To find out more, contact BayRep, the Bay Area Earthquake Preparedness Project, 101 8th Street, Suite 152, Oakland, California, 94607. That's Bay Rep, 101 8th Street, Suite 152, 
Oakland 94607. Call 415-893-0818. 415-893-0818. And be prepared. I was downtown in the financial district, but my fiancé was home, and he was walking down the steps, and he made it to the middle of the street and literally saw the building come down in front of him. Um, I'm just glad we're alive, but there's nothing there. Everything's gone. In just 15 seconds, our lives had changed. But the shaking had barely stopped before Northern Californians had dusted themselves off and started pulling together. Citizens directed traffic, put out fires, and risked their lives for others. Food, money, volunteers, and support poured in, sometimes given by those who could little afford to give. The Bay Area's first World Series became baseball's most unusual two weeks. Four games and no champagne. But yes, the game did go on, and with a makeshift fleet of ferry boats, BART trains, and compound ingenuity, the congested Bay Area managed to avoid gridlock. When it was all over, the mighty shift of the continental plates had brought forth more than damage. It brought forth spirit, individual spirit, civic spirit, can-do spirit, the spirit to carry on. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values, and it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle. Well, a look today at 30 ways, 30 days to strengthen your family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And a new book out tonight, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Hegland, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents (laughs) understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you, you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the 
dollars that today's youth spend. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world, and the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income, and the marketers know that, and so they're after that share of the pie, and unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters, to sit down and go over them with their children, too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world versus you against your child. And, you know, the and irony is really important. For, for our parents, when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to, and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. Um, even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical, and the pediatrician female pediatrician actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the long to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that, and uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, and what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um, and so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that, that is key because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and, and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God-honoring with the kind of uh, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle, and all of a sudden now there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. 
So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Heglin. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegeling continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hegeling, and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting, and you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle because, guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on television or the Internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to, to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their hearts, so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day, to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this, and you can find great joy, because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies, great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no-zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable 
for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, There are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day, and just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices, but my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live leave our house wondering what is right, and they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger, and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, If you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And, of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket, and whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make, and that, I guess at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You, you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, You have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And, uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons 
why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and, and starting afresh and anew tonight if, if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a, a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent, and the child is watching you. Is it important that you're, you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example? Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to, to make good friendships, and uh, part of that includes why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that won't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, if you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here, and you think, oh, that's just a little white lie, a lie is a lie, and your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and, and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of, one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think, beginning, oh, it's too late, I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is, as long as there's breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, Mom was my hero, Dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness, it's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes 
sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great grandfather or grandfather who who served in World War II, or you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home. Um, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models, you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, Very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, Newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there, Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well, no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive, and um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Heglin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's the Resurgent. Surgeon.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.